Dear God, we pause deliberately, intentionally to look to you. We have prayed already this morning and we continue in prayer, just having hearts that are standing before you, kneeling before you, dependent upon you, asking you to speak to us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to draw us closer, to reveal yourself to us. All these things, Lord, we are in great need of. We live in a world, Lord, that doesn't draw near to God, that doesn't care much at all about God or is even hardened against God. And so, Lord, we're glad to be here this morning in this setting where we can open our hearts to you and say, Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We give you this time. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever felt something like this? These words were written by a great man of God named Paul the Apostle. He said in one place in Romans chapter 7, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And so I do what I do not want to do, and I agree with the law that it is good. And it is, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing, wretched man that I am. That's not the whole passage, but that's the part I wanted to bring before you this morning. A man's struggle with uh, not doing the things that he knows he wants to do and should do and ending up doing the things that he shouldn't do. And he knows that and he's struggling with it. And if you read the whole passage, his solution is none other than Jesus Christ, uh, living in him and living through him. But uh, those words kind of capture the struggle that, that uh, all of us have with sin in our lives. Now, let me be clear. A Christian is a person who has come to Christ, embraced Christ as Savior and Lord, sees their need of a Savior, bows before him, asks him to come into the, your life, forgive you of your sins, recognizes that that forgiveness is accomplished at the cross, and they just we just connect in faith to the work that Christ has done, and we are what we say saved, which is the short form of salvation, and, uh, and that is to be a Christian. But we still struggle with the presence of sin in our life. And as we grow in the Christian life and we, with God's help, are winning those struggles and sinning less, uh, it's called sanctification. It's being changed, being transformed into the very nature and image of Christ. And it's an ongoing, lifelong process. More about that in a moment. But I just want to say a few words this week and next week about sometimes what a hard struggle it is uh, in this battle with sin. And I want to urge you, never give up. Keep fighting and struggling all the way. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we struggle for a long time. A long time. I remember talking with, uh, I've, I've talked with more than one individual who have said, I'm just not making any progress. I, 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 three steps forward and two steps backward and one step and four steps backwards. Oh, man, I don't know if I'm having any net gain or not in my life. And, uh, and, uh, and, they, and they, it's, it's almost like they're saying, why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? How long do I have to struggle with this, Lord? 
And, uh, and that can be the experience of, of many of us. Whether that struggle is a, a smaller, if I could put in quotes, smaller sin or something major and, and life-destroying almost, uh, we struggle with sin and sometimes we wonder, why is it taking so long? Plus, we know that that thing in our life shouldn't be there, that it's God's will that it should be gone. And we know there's a verse in 1 John 5 somewhere that says, if we pray according to his will, he hears us and the thing that we're praying for is, is answered. And we say, I did that and it wasn't answered. What's going on? You know, we know it's God's will. And so I've talked with individuals, wrestled with it myself, and I'm sure we all have. I'm just trying to put it into words. And... Uh, I want to address why this morning and what might be going on. And I'll use the word might uh, in, in the sense of I want you to think about this and look at it scripturally and, and biblically as to what God might be doing. One thing I want you to know for sure is that God is not absent. He has not left you alone. And he is at work in your life, whether you see it happening or not. It's very important that we understand he is. And that it's good to explore that uh, a little bit. Let's look at... Uh, uh, two or three verses of scripture uh, just as we, as we begin here to sort of set the table for us. I'm not sure what's coming up here. Is Philippians 2 verse 13, 14 available? Yeah, let's have that one. Uh, Philippians 2 13. This is Paul writing to the Philippian church. He's writing about various things and, and all of a sudden we see these lines right here. He says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. But I, I, like those, uh, I like those words. I've emboldened them. Uh, it is God who works in you. And it's important for us to realize that God is working in you and me all the time. We need to recognize that, join him in the work, and embrace that work. Uh, another verse would be coming out of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20, 21. This is a doxology at the end of the letter to the Hebrews. A doxology is kind of like a little prayer, a little concluding statement, committing people to God. And uh, so Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us, there it is again, what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. A long sentence, but I, I, I saw there in it, may he work in us. One more verse, Galatians 4, 19. Paul writing to the Galatian Christians. The word work isn't in here. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. But there's the process. The formation of Christ in us and in our lives as he works in us. That's his goal. Uh, some people now use the phrase spiritual formation a lot. Uh, spiritual formation, discipleship, kind of all the same entity. Uh, that uh, God is doing in our lives. So uh, he doesn't say until Christ is in you, Christ is in us, but the process is Christ being formed in us. In other words, my life taking on the shape of Jesus, uh, that his life being expressed and now seen in my life, that is Christ being formed in us.
You know what deism is? Deism is a, is a theological system that says there's a God, and he created everything that is, and then he just kind of left. He's, he's out there somewhere, really far away. Don't bother praying to him because he's no longer really active in the world anymore. He created it. He set it going. That's the only explanation we have for this created world that we live in. But, but he's not very close. He's absent. And I, I'm, I'm afraid that some Christians almost have a Christian form of deism where we think, yeah, Christ saved me. He died for me. He forgave me, gave me. And, but he's kind of absent I'm not really counting on him for very much. Um, what I usually say to him is, thanks a lot, Lord, for forgiving my sins and saving me, and uh, we'll see you in heaven. I hear you're really something. No. Do not believe that lie. He is not absent. He's at work. But it takes some discernment and some investigation to see how he's at work in our lives. Words to a new Christian. Congratulations. You have come to Christ. You've, you've faced up to the fact that you need a Savior, that you need to acknowledge your sins, acknowledge your need of a Savior. That's called repentance, changing of your mind, and you've put your faith in Christ as the Savior that you need. He is absolutely adequate and up for the job of saving you. And, and so you've become a Christian. You've become a child of God. You and me now, we're brothers and sisters, right? We have the same father. We're in the same family. We're in the family of God. And, uh, and that, that's all just, just so wonderful. For you, new Christian, I have some good news and some bad news for you. Uh-oh. The good news is this. When you gave your life to Christ... He ge when you give your life to Christ, he gives his life to you and sends his Holy Spirit to live in you and to work in your life. There's that work word again, God working in us, sends his Holy Spirit to live in us, to work in your life for the rest of your life. That's awesome. Uh, now the bad news is when you give your life to Christ, he gives his life to you and he sends his Holy Spirit to live in you and to work in your life for the rest of your life. Pastor, you made a mistake. <laughs> you just read what you just read. I know. Let's go back to the good news again for a moment. The good news is that God's goal is to change you and me, transform us into amazing, God-glorifying, Christ-centered people to make you and me more loving, more compassionate. That's good. More patient. That's really good. More humble more wise, joyful, ultimately to be a Christ-like person. It's very good news. The world needs more Christ-like people. Uh, back to the bad news. It's not going to be easy. Through the Spirit of Christ in us, we really are saved by his grace but we still have a fleshly, sinful, fallen nature that we live in and inhabit here in this world. We have many deeply ingrained sinful habits and ways of thinking in that fallen nature, as theologians call it. And my fallen nature, and I think I can speak for all of us, tends to be very self-focused, uh, proud, irritable. It craves to be in control, 
not happy if it's not in control, it craves to be admired, not happy if it's not admired, it, uh, it's obsessed with being comfortable, and is so judgmental of other people. That's my fallen nature. The Holy Spirit has moved into that person, and the work is about to begin, and it's not going to be easy. God's Spirit is out to change that, and that is bad news for my sinful nature. Or as Paul wrote in Galatians chapter four or 5, the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not able to do whatever you want. Do you see the conflict going on inside every Christian? It is there. Let's, ha let's think through a possible explanation. I have four points I want to make, one this morning and the other three a little shorter ones next week. Uh, the one this morning goes as follows. Suppose that you're wrestling with a long-time sin that you can't seem to get the victory over, and uh, it's, uh, it's some kind of issue in my life, whatever it is. I want to be rid of it. I know it's God's will to be rid of it. What... <coughs> I'm concerned about this. Maybe it's my judgmentalism against other people. God is concerned about this area of sin in my life, for sure. Absolutely he is. He doesn't want us to be judgmental, feeling superior, looking down on other people. And so I pray that he would take it away because I know it should be gone. And, uh, and okay, what if God answered that prayer really quickly. Like one prayer, boom, it's gone. Hey, man, I just see everybody differently now. This is, this is so cool, you know, and, and he takes away that sin that I wrestle with very quickly in my life. You know what might happen? I might become proud of what I have now become. I think that often we wrestle because God sees something we don't see. He's aware of something I'm not aware of in my own heart and in my own life. I'm looking at the judgmentalism in my life, and I'm concerned about it, and God is not unconcerned about it, but he's looking deeper, and he sees a real root of pride deep down in my heart that he's even more concerned about because it will do more damage than anything else as I live this life. And so he's after my pride and he might be using my struggle with a certain issue in my life to alert me and bring me to face to face with something else in my life that is even more concerning and more deadly and more damaging. If he answered my prayer to be relieved of a certain sin too quickly, I might be walking around like that Pharisee in Luke 18 who said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other people. I don't do this, and I don't do that. And that guy was more proud than anything else. And God is after the pride in our life, and he wants to deal with it. And he might need to use my struggle to bring me to a place where I see something I haven't seen thus far in my life. I think that is really possible. You know why God works that way? Because he loves us more than we know. He knows us better and more intimately than we know ourselves. And we have to trust him in that process. That's really, really important. And so, I might be concerned about a level one sin in my life, 
And God might be concerned about a level three or four sin in my life. I can see you saying, what the world are you talking about? Where does it say level one sin, level four sin in, in the Bible? It doesn't. I read a book uh, last fall by a guy named Robert Mulholland. It's called Invitation to a Journey. It's all about spiritual formation. The goal of all spiritual formation, he says, the goal of all discipleship is loving relationships, mature, loving relationships. That is so deeply important. But anyhow, as, as I was reading his book about spiritual formation, he had a portion in there uh, about level one, two, three, four sins, which I thought was interesting. I'll try to describe them to you. Excuse me. Level one sins are loud, very visible. You know you struggle with it, and everybody else knows you struggle with it. It might be your temper. It might be your impatience with your kids. It, it, it might be some kind of an addictive type of behavior, but it's very visible. Everybody knows it. You know it. Level one. Level two sins are things that you know about in your life. You struggle with it, but nobody else knows that you struggle with that. It's more invisible. And, uh, and so it's your own, as the author said, your own private rebellion against God. God, get out of here. Leave me alone. I can handle this. I don't know whatever it is that we're saying, but, but uh, no one knows that I have that issue going on in my life, but I do, and God does, and, and, and there's the struggle. Level three. Oh, let me say, quote, unquote, religion, and a lot of Christianity is only concerned about level one and level two sins those big bad ones that we all see, or those other ones that I know of in my life that no one else sees, but, but it's, it's, yeah, it would be good to take care of that as well. Level three. These are things in my life that I don't know about. I'm doing them. I'm, it's, it's, it's in my speech, perhaps. It's in my attitudes. It's in my actions, and I'm not aware of it. And some, one day, one of you comes up to me and says, John, could we talk just for a minute? And we go out for coffee, and you say, that thing that you're doing, that way that you talk to your wife, Kathy, that, 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 that attitude, it, it's not good, John. You need to deal with that. And hopefully, I'm humble enough to say, really? I had no idea. Thank you for pointing that out to me. And we've got our finger on a level three sin, one that I didn't know about. I wasn't aware. It's a blind spot in our life. Level four. This is what uh, Robert Mulholland calls structures of misbelief. Very hidden, very unknown to me, the person, they are belief systems, belief structures, hidden down in my soul and in my heart. Who knows how they got there? It might have been through a past experience. It might have been through a, where I was hurt, where I was frightened, where I, where I was, maybe I was, maybe I was just exalted. Oh, what a, and it's, but something changed in my heart that really loved that, and, and I'm not aware of it. And, and it, but, but there's a, there's a misbelief, a twisted, hidden 
faith structure in my heart. It, it might be have something to do with my, my deepest beliefs about how to truly be happy. And it might be all wrong. Because it might not be in any way what God wants for us to be able to be fulfilled and happy. It might have something to do with, with control. And, and maybe I'm a really controlling person and I don't really know why. But it's, it's hidden down there. And God wants to get at that. He wants to talk to me about that and change that in my life. As I said, it's not easy. And that's why sometimes it's so hard and why we have to wait so long and struggle so long. But the struggle is going somewhere. That's what's really important. God is at work in you and me. I need to say this before I forget. You know how people often say church is boring, right? Yeah. You know why it's boring? Because nothing's happening. Like it's the same old, same old every week, right? That means God isn't working. When God is working in a person, or when God is working in a whole church, it's never boring. It's the most exciting, wonderful thing in the world when people's lives are changing. You know what it means to be dead? Like physically dead, dead body? Sorry about that. But uh, a dead body has all the parts. It has lungs, it has liver, it has a brain, it has blood, it has, you know, all, it's just recently, you know, deceased. But nothing is working. Nothing is moving. Nothing is changing. There's no blood moving through the veins and the arteries. There's no oxygen and carbon dioxide being exchanged in the lungs. There's no digestive processes going on. There's no food crossing the cell membranes and waste crossing back out. There's no energy being exchanged here and there. It's just nothing. I don't want to be part of a church like that. The church is the body of Christ. God is at work in the church. We are that as well as, as every other church in Guelph. And let there not be deadness in the church. Because that is boring. It's awful. I wouldn't blame you for never coming back. But when we see God at work in one another's lives, and we're humbly embracing his work, and we're embracing even the stuff that's hard, that's a wonderful thing. And it glorifies God. How do you glorify God, brother? Oh, man, it's in the singing. You get your hands in the air and you're, you know, and, and it's, it's, that's how we glorify. It's, good singing is good, right? And worship is good. But that's, it, that also could not be for the glory of God, depending. But I know one thing, that God is glorified when he is visibly and evidently working in a person's life and it's, it's visible and encouraging to others, or in a whole bunch of people's lives. And we can say God is at work here. That's so important. So let's see, where were we? Level one and level two, uh, religion likes to take care of those things and then figure its day is done. God wants to go to level three, those other sins in my life I'm not even aware of that I need to be aware of, and level four, just beliefs that need to be transformed by the core truths of Christianity as to what I think about God, what I think about myself, what I think about other people, what I think about the church, what I think about my neighbor, all of those belief structures, God wants to put his finger on and touch them as well. So much we're not aware of in our own life that God is working on, and I'm just inviting you on a journey to become aware and to become open to that.
because that will allow God to be at work in the church. I had a friend, um, lived in a, another city, another place, you don't know him, and his wife, <coughs> just in case you think you're sitting beside the person I'm talking about, um, his wife had some symptoms, I'm trying to remember the story, and so they thought, yeah, better, better go get checked out here, and she went, and the, the doctor uh, thought that he knew what was going on, and so he sent her to another specialist to get some, you know, scans and pictures taken and all that sort of thing, and, and uh, so uh, uh, she did, and she came back, and there's a doctor's report, and he said, it's nothing. He said, yeah, there's, there's uh, you know, what we were concerned about, it, it, there's nothing there. Then he said, but while we were looking, we saw something else, and we'll want to send you to another specialist, and it turns out that unknown to any of them, in this process, there, I think it was bladder cancer or something like, something really serious that was discovered that no one knew about. And, and I, j I just wonder if that's how our, our lives are sometimes, where, where we have certain symptoms, but really the thing that really needs to be addressed is something else entirely in our lives, and God wants to do that as well. God at work in us. Let's uh, finish with the story of Jacob and Esau. <coughs> Two twin brothers. Uh, back in Genesis, somewhere around chapters 26 to 33 or so, something like that. Jacob and Esau were born to Isaac and Rebekah, two great old saints. They were twins, but these twins could not be any more different. Esau was a macho man, all hairy and strong and big and was a hunter. Uh, you wouldn't want to get on Esau's wrong side. He could probably squish you with his left hand. And, uh, and, and he, was, he was just that, that type of guy. Would have driven a Harley today if he, uh, well, apologies to Harley drivers. Uh, there's a, actually a few of them in the church that aren't like Esau at all. Anyhow, uh, but Esau was big and red and hairy and strong and gruff and, and everything. And Jacob was so absolutely different from his twin brother Esau. Jacob was, uh, I think the word in scripture, it's actually the word soft. He had softer skin, just a softer nature, and uh, he wasn't big and strong, but he was really, really smart. In fact, he was crafty. In fact, he was cunning and deceitful. He survived by his wits, not by his brawn. One day, Jacob, in his craftiness and his cunning nature. I won't go into the whole story, but he did a really bad thing to Esau. He cheated him and ripped him off and got a hold of Esau's birthright, which is really your whole future. And, and he stole it by tricking his blind father. Oh, it's, it's quite a story. It's, it's a, it's a, it was a horrible thing that he did. Esau finally found out and was enraged. And uh, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, said, you better get out of here. <laughs> um, he wants to kill you. And Esau said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill him. I'm gonna he was just enraged, ready to kill him. There, the, the talk about a dysfunctional relationship between two brothers. So, and, and, and the mother, Rebecca, said, just go for a little while and visit your uncle Laban. And then when he quiets down, you can come back and the family will be normal again. So Jacob left and he, he had to leave his home. 
uh, had to flee. That's kind of humbling. And he went to visit Uncle Laban, and he wasn't there, quote, a little while. He was there 14 years. That's more than a little while. It, and, and, and for that 14 years, uh, he, uh, so Jacob had to meet someone who was cunning and crafty just like he was, and that was Uncle Laban. Like, that guy was a bad dude. And, uh, and he, he ripped off Jacob and tricked him and got him into trouble uh, and, and all messed up. But I suppose in one sense, Jacob was learning something when he came uh, under the influence of someone who was kind of like himself, right? I think that's called empathy, uh, where, you, where you, uh, you, know, you, 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 you learn to feel what other people are feeling. And uh, so anyway, time went by. And for 14 years, Jacob would have had ringing in his ears Esau's words, I just want to kill you for what you did to me. And probably thought, I would love to be restored to my family, love to be restored to my brother, but I don't know what to do. Praying, why is this so hard? Finally, it was time. He couldn't avoid it any longer. It was time to go back and face up to Esau. So, you know how you avoid a problem a long time, and finally you realize, oh, I just got to do it. I just got to face it. Whatever happens, happens. So he got all of his entourage and his, his livestock and his family and children and everything together, and they headed back home uh, in fear and trembling. And uh, there was a night just before, oh, he was told by the scouts that Esau was coming. Esau heard he was coming, so Esau was coming to meet him, and Esau has 400 warriors with him. Jacob has uh, his wives and, and, uh, and children and, and uh, some, some livestock, and that he doesn't have an army. And, uh, and so the night before he was about to meet Esau, Jacob finds himself alone by a river, River Jabbok. And uh, as, as darkness is falling, uh, a man, a, a mysterious shadowy man, steps out of the shadows and begins to engage Jacob in a wrestling match. And they fight and wrestle all night long. And partway through the night, Jacob realizes, I'm wrestling with God. Like the angel of God was there. And, and finally he said to this mysterious man who was in fact a messenger from God, I won't let you go until you bless me. He knew now that he needed the blessing of God. Up until, his, up until this point, he did not recognize that. Now I need God, was what he was saying. Jacob was changing tremendously. The angel did one more thing, touched him on the hip. And his hip was dislocated, and he headed into the next day with a pronounced limp. And so here he goes out to meet Esau. He sees Esau coming, and he goes out to meet him. He knows now he needs God. He's been humbled. He's, he's, been, he's suffered at the hands of Laban, Uncle Laban, and, uh, and he, he can hardly walk. And he's finally, only now, finally ready to meet Esau. Why so hard? Because God had a lot to do in your life, Jacob. And so he approaches Esau, and the picture of surrender is actually a very beautiful thing. He gets close to Esau, and he bows down to the ground before Esau. And he stands up, and then he bows down. And he stands up, and he bows down seven times. Seven, as we know, is often a picture of fullness. It was a complete and full surrender. Stands up, and Esau moves directly toward him, 
Is he going to beat him up, chop his head off? There's no sword in his hand. Esau embraces Jacob in a huge bear hug, starts kissing him, and it says so poignantly in Scripture, and they wept. God was working in Jacob's life. God is working in your, our lives and my life. And that's a very good thing. That's the life that is evident in the church. Three quick things as to how, 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 how to embrace this working of God in your life. You might say, that's a little scary. And I don't know how to do this. Three, three quick things. Number one, embrace all that God wants to do in your life. Sometimes we're of the thinking, I just want to be saved, just forgiven, and then enjoy life and go to heaven. And, you know, that's not all God wants to do in your life. For goodness sakes, read the Bible and realize God wants to utterly transform you from the deepest part of your heart right to the ends of the hairs on your head. Embrace all that God wants to do in your life. He's not a bad God. He's a good God. He's compa compassionate, gracious, and he wants to work in your life in a beautiful way that brings glory to God and flourishing to you. Secondly, become a listener. Listen for God's voice in your life. If you pray the prayer, Lord, okay, speak to me and begin to work in me and that thing that I'm struggling with, I'm bringing it to you. Now what do I do? Stop working so hard. Stop trying so hard and spend more time listening to the still small voice of God. You might be very, very surprised at what you would hear as God would speak to you and touch your heart. That's also a beautiful thing. I think Jacob became more of a listener as he went through life until he was finally on his face before his brother Esau and it all turned out well. So <clears throat> embrace all that God wants to do in your life. Realize that God wants to do more than just save you from your sins. He wants to transform your life to the glory of God and then become a listener. We'll stop there this morning. Why so hard? Because God is at work. Sometimes it takes longer than we think, and he might be after bigger fish to fry than I think he's after in my life. He's out to change me in a deep and beautiful way. Let's let him do that. Dear God, thank you for what an exciting journey it is to be in Christ and to follow Christ and to be those people who Christ is being formed in. Continue your good work in our life, we pray. By your spirit, help us to remember and begin to live and practice the things that we've heard this morning. Thank you for your commitment to us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. I'm going to invite you to stand and join us in singing our final song. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. No one.
purchase of God, born of His Spirit. 